Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Turning directly to the events that are the ultimate events in the life of Christ. And this morning we turn to Matthew 26. And we look together at verses 1 through 5 of Matthew 26. Will you stand with me as we read together the Word of God? Remember, Jesus has just finished the Olivet Discourse. And now we find it happened that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples... You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. They were saying not during the festival lest a riot occur among the people. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Will you raise your arms with me? Father, your word says let men raise holy arms in prayer. Holy men raise their arms in prayer, Father. It's not the arms, but the men. The men and the women, Father, of your church are beseeching you, and they're coming to you and asking you, give your word power this morning, and may it affect us. May it convict us. May the power of the Holy Spirit be upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you for praying with me. And so our attention turns from the the teaching of Christ, the, the presentation of truths orally to the disciples, to the presentation of the truth physically, both to the Father and to the world. Because that's what lies ahead is physical truth. Jesus demonstrating in his body as a man the truth of all that he he is and all that the Bible teaches. And so we, we turn from the words that were spoken on a hillside to deeds that will ultimately come to culmination on a hillside. Both true, but the former dependent upon the latter. Without the latter, the former being words, but with the latter, with the hillside of Golgotha, the former being words of life, not just words. And so we see in this passage a, a basic distinction, contradiction uh, of lives, of paths, of approaches to spiritual life. Note that in our passage, there are two groups 
both of which are religious groups. You have Christ, who's finished and speaks to his disciples. You have the chief priests, the elders of the people. The elders of the people include some from the Pharisaic party, some of the Sadducees. It's the Sanhedrin and the people of importance in Jerusalem. It includes people like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, we believe. Not them necessarily here, but those who are gathered. That's the, the class. We see beyond these two religious groupings that are distinct in the place where they're meeting, a distinction between the chief priests and the elders of the people and how they act and Jesus and how he acts. The chief priests and the elders of the people are acting in concert jointly. They are the religious and political leaders of the time and of the nation, and they are banding together as religious leaders over the millennia have tended to act. They are acting in concert. They are banding together. They are jointly speaking Jesus is distinct from this. Jesus is with his disciples, but there's an obvious distinction here. Jesus is going to his death. He is separate from his disciples, and it becomes ever increasingly clear that he is distinct from his disciples as this week wends its way towards Calvary. Jesus is Jesus is more and more abandoned by even his closest loved ones, the closest disciples, his friends, as he makes his way to Calvary. It's a lonely walk. The Bible says that they shall strike the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And we see this occurring through this week so that here at this point, the elders and the priests are afraid of the crowds. They're saying, we can't kill him during the festival. There'll be a riot. They're frightened. (laughs) And yet when the time comes, even the crowds that the elders and the priests are concerned about turning against them if if they seek to kill Jesus during the festival, they kill him during the festival, at the heart of it, at the height of it. And the people are with him. He is alone. And they are acting in concert as a crowd. Leadership is essentially lonely. If you are a leader of any worth in any area, whether it's as a father or a mother, whether it's as a business leader or a a town leader, a political leader of some sort, whether it's leadership in the church, wherever it may be, True leadership is a lonely job. It entails walking alone. It's not something that is done in concert. Never ever has, has groupthink led to good leadership. It's lonely to be a leader. 
If you're a father, you're going to have to act at times against the desires of everyone in your family because you're convinced it's for their good, but they don't see it. A wife, you will at times be leading your family in exactly the same way. And in addition, there's the loneliness of the wife of having at times to, and the husband always is facing this kind of thing, but the wife may at times have to confront the husband. Biblically, it's lonely to be a wife. You will stand between your husband and your children, sometimes against them both. Pastors, you have to take unpopular stands. There will be important and influential people who you will have to stand against. And if you're a faithful pastor, you'll risk your job. If you own a business, you know what it is to make unpopular decisions. If you're a teacher, at times, for the sake of order, for the sake of truth, you must face down an entire class. Doctors. When the family wants the the loved one, the not-so-loved one, just to be left to die, to be abandoned to the the process rather than cared for. It's lonely. The whole medical establishment stands against you. And this is when leadership is called for. Leadership is lonely. (laughs) Moses, perhaps the greatest leader in the history of the human race, who took the hundreds of thousands and then millions of Israelites for 40 years through the wilderness to the promised land, the greatest leader ever, was a solitary man. Solitary alone in his stance for God, against the whole nation, even at times against his own brother and sister, who God had sent to help him. But they themselves at points said, hey, who do you think you are? Lonely. Leadership is lonely. David, a great leader, he writes in Psalm 25, turn to me and be gracious to me. God, I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a violent hatred. And of course, Jesus Christ, the great leader of all mankind, the second Adam, was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. No greater loneliness than that of Christ as he walks this lonely road to that lonely cross alone. Good leadership cannot escape loneliness. A note in contrast that the Jewish religious and civic leaders of our passage are not lonely, but conspirators. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest, privately in a private home, in Caiaphas's courtyard, plotting together how to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. They come in secret at night, in a private home to plot. They, the leaders of this nation, gathering surreptitiously in the court of the high priest Caiaphas in secret to plot the seizure and murder of this man who's walking publicly in his loneliness and declaring the truth. And they 
are hidden. Why the stealth? Why the conspiracy amongst this group? Well, we learn the reason in the Gospel of John. John writes about the raising of Lazarus from the dead in Bethany just before the events of this week took place. He said, therefore, John 11, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. The raising of Lazarus. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the whole Sanhedrin together, elders of the people. And they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is doing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it's better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. So from that day on, they plan together to kill him. They are scared of him. They are frightened. Caiaphas, the architect of this plan, he says it's good that one man die so that the rest of us don't. It's the calculus of cowardice. It's better that others suffer so that we are safe. It's better that we, we make our nefarious plans in darkness at night. Cloaked conspiracies plotting because it's good for the people. This is good leadership. And so these chief men of Israel gather together to plot. These powerful men over the nation employ stealth to cloak their plot which is to murder an innocent man who's just raised a man from the dead because they're cowards cowardice the great affliction of the Pharisees the great sin of the priests the abiding characteristic of the leaders of the Jews John tells us about the cowardice of these men He says in chapter 12, just beyond what we read about their being afraid of Jesus and saying, we've got to kill him. John says, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, that is Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. It's stunning, isn't it? These men believed in their hearts that Jesus was the Messiah, but because of their innate and abiding cowardice, they would not acknowledge him, but rather sought to kill him. And so they have... Uh, valued the approval of men more highly than the approval of God. Jesus is clear in telling you that his path is a lonely one. He says to you, broad is the way of destruction. Broad is the gate, broad is the way, the road is vast, and many, many, many people are gathered on it, walking down it. 
But narrow is the way and few are upon it that leads to life. It's lonely. It's lonely. Cowardice, the path of the, the many, the broad way, it's a deadly sin. As deadly a sin as any that exists. It may perhaps be better to be a murderer than a coward. Better to be an adulterer. Uh, uh, murder and adultery are great sins. They are, but they don't close the path of repentance. They don't put a blockade across the road that leads to Jesus. The woman caught in adultery could repent that very moment. The thief on the cross for all his crimes could repent instantly. But cowardice closes the avenue of repentance by preferring ease to truth, the crowd to loneliness, the visible to what is unseen. And thus cowardice is the polar opposite of faith and faith and cowardice cannot coexist. You may think that cowardice is a necessary evil at times, that it saves lives and property and reputation. If you go with the crowd, if you avoid standing out, you will not be the nail that sticks out. You will not be hammered. You're going to save and conserve your influence until the appropriate moment. You're going to wait. And then at some point, you'll speak up and all along the way, you'll be building your bank account of influence so that when you do speak up, then you really have the attention of the people. But it doesn't work that way. If you save your influence, you have none. Influence saved is influence abandoned. If you're not speaking from the beginning, you won't be speaking the truth at the end. It's just that way. At the very end of the book of Revelation, where Zach is reading, John is granted by the angel who is his guide a view of the new heaven and a new earth. God is seated on his great white throne. It's Revelation 21, right, right before the very end of the Bible. And it says, John writes, he says, I, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, the dwelling place of God, the tent of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Then he says to John, write these words down, for they are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without costs. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. He's welcoming all those who are his children to heaven all those who've overcome, all those who have worshipped the Lamb. But listen to the next thing that God says from his throne. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire 
and brimstone, which is the second death. The unbelieving, the abominable, those who are just abominations. Murderers, the immoral, those who are sexually perverse and immoral. Sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. And the cowardly. The cowardly. Those who allow their fear to trump the truth. The cowardly have no place in heaven. Their destiny, along with the murderers, is the lake of fire. Cowardice is deadly. It is a disqualifying sin. So we must think further about cowardice if we are not to fall into its trap. The first thing we must understand is that cowardice can coexist with belief. Cowardice is a separate sin from unbelief. The Jewish leaders did believe in Jesus, but they were cowards in their bodies. In their minds, they said yes. With their bodies, their tongues, the rest of their life, they said no. The Protestant world today, the world that you've grown up in that says it's what you think in your mind is all that matters is dead wrong. If you don't obey Jesus and overcome with your flesh as well as with your heart and your mind, you are not a follower of Christ. You can believe and still be a coward and be cast out of heaven. Second, cowardice is not a vice that stands opposite the virtue of bravery in God's view. Cowardice sends you to hell. Bravery does not get you into heaven. You can be a very brave murderer. That doesn't mean you're going to heaven. But you cannot be a coward and go to hell. And and go to heaven, excuse me. Third, not every act of cowardice excludes from heaven. There will be cowardly moments, cowardly deeds, cowardly thoughts and hesitations in even the most notable Christian lives. Just two nights from now, Peter's going to play the coward in that very same courtyard where the Jewish leaders on this night are plotting to kill Jesus. He'll deny him three times. But you can't end in cowardice. You can't. You must overcome cowardice. But many Christians give in to cowardice. Was it Bishop Latimer who recanted when he was threatened with execution for his for his his stance on the Reformation in the 1500s in England. What? Yeah, Latimer, Ridley or Latimer. It was one or the other. But the first the first time he was threatened, he grew frightened. And they said, recant. And he signed the recantation. He said, I, I don't believe it anymore. And then he was convicted by God. And he said, I recant my recantation. And they put him to death. And as he was being burned at the stake, he held out his hand in the fire and said, let the hand that sinned be the first to be purged. Not every act of cowardice excludes from heaven, but we must die as brave men and women. 
Fourth, we must recognize that at the heart of every hypocrisy is a desire for the approval of man and an unwillingness to, to, to stand alone for God. And that hypocrisy and cowardice are thus virtually synonymous. You, you, you see the astounding lack of courage in these leaders. I mean, they, they govern the nation. Chief priests, elders of the people. They are going to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. That's the plot. To bring him before them, to hire some people, to accuse him of having blasphemed on those trumped up charges, to hold him guilty and to sentence him to death. That's their plan. They need Judas to let them know where they can catch him in secret. But their plan is already established. They've arranged for perjuring witnesses to stand before their court and to charge Jesus with blasphemy. That is the charge they continually lay against Jesus. He is a blasphemer. He, a mere man, claims equality with God. Now this charge pretends, of course, to be based on a high regard for God. These guys are saying, God is great. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. God is great. You can shout God is great and know nothing of him. God is great, they say. And God is great. But you need to remember as you shout God is great, you are not. And now I come to think that because you can shout Allahu Akbar, I'm talking the Muslim phrase, but there's the same equivalence in all our religions. The temple, the temple, you know, that by association we are great as well. The fact that God is great does not mean that you are great. God is great. You are sinful. God is true, but you are an imposter. God is God, but you are man and you die. Now this charge... And its associated penalty, the charge of blasphemy demanded by the Jewish leaders should flow from a righteous indignation at Christ doing these things and saying these things. There should be the same empowering indignation that fueled Old Testament great men like Phineas. Phineas, who was in the midst of the assembly on the plains of Moab and saw that the the Moabite women were coming down and seducing the Israelite men by their beauty to themselves and thus to their gods and their idols. God sends a, a scourge, a plague on the people. And Phineas is one of the sons of Aaron. And he sees this, the plague and it's devastating the encamped people of Israel. And in the midst of the plague, a leader of the Jewish people comes into the camp with a Moabite woman, and goes into his tent in the view of everyone to commit adultery with her or fornication, whatever it is, sexual sin. And Phineas, in his zeal for God, grabs a spear, runs, and sticks it through both of them, and the plague is stopped. He did not scheme he did not plot. He did not conspire with others on, on how should we deal with this. Filled with righteous anger, he stuck his spear through them both. Now, a man claiming to be God 
but not. A man who says he's God but works miracles by Beelzebub, which is what the leaders of the Jews say about Jesus. Remember, they're saying he's really not of God. The remarkable things he does, he does because he's in league with Satan. He's a devil. A man like that who's walking around and teaching in the temple, one of these guys should come up to with a spear if they really believe it. They shouldn't wait for the Romans to help them. Where's the zeal? These are sons of Aaron, the high priests. Where's the passion for God? It's not there because it's a lie. They're cowards. They pretend to this high moral dudgeon and all they care about is their wealth. Cowardice of these men is all the more striking in the face of the opposite in Jesus, the courage. Jesus is not conspiring secretly. He does everything. He says to them, hey, why are you coming in secret to grab me when they come and grab me? Have I not been testifying openly in the courts of the temple day by day? Have I been conducting myself in little secret cabals, teaching here and there whispers? No. I've been in your midst. I've been declaring the truth. At the top of my voice, you're the men of secrecy. Jesus does not oppose these wicked men in secret. He stands against them openly, plainly. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you in the temple. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. Nothing secret about it. He says it over and over. But even more than his relationship to the Jewish leaders, the courage of Christ is on display here in his single-minded path to Calvary. And Jesus, it's obvious. He says, in two days, Passover, the Son of Man is delivered for crucifixion. He knows he's going to his death. Every day of this week, is a, a, every step he takes, every, every beat of his heart is one closer to the end of the week in his death, in Calvary. His death on a cross, his shameful death as a criminal, and the death which will separate him from the Father because he bears the sins of mankind. It's not death. Jesus embraces death. It's bearing the weight of my wickedness and yours. That's the thing. That's the thing. And he's marching straight on to Calvary. He doesn't flinch every step, every hour, every word in the face of impending death in the knowledge that at the end of this path is Calvary and his separation from God and his bearing the weight of sin. There's a marvelous little detail in the book of Numbers at the end of one of the innumerable rebellions of the Israelites against Moses and through Moses against God. And the one I'm thinking of is probably the most serious of all the rebellions, and there are many of them. It's an insurrection led by the Israelite chieftains Korah, Nadab, and Abihu. Korah, the sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu of, of the tribe of Reuben. 
all three together claimed the right to lead instead of Moses. They said, we are all holy. Who set you apart? What makes you our leader? Why should we follow you? We're all holy. And so they arose, 250 elders of Israel, to oppose Moses and Aaron. It's interesting that it's 250 against two. And this, is, this, is the, this is the economy of cowardice. Numbers. <coughs> they oppose Moses and Aaron. Moses says to them, all right, all right, go and get incense burners, censers. Fill them with incense. Come to the door of the tabernacle, and the next day we're going to see which of us God has chosen. Now, Nadab and Abihu refused the challenge, and they stay home. And God caused the ground to swallow them up and their families. The others, 250 strong, go with their censers to the tabernacle. There at the tabernacle with Moses and Aaron and the 250 rebels standing together, all holding censers before the Lord, God sent fire from heaven and it consumed the incense and the men of the 250. All of them gone. Dead. Now in the aftermath of that judgment by God on the 250 rebels, the very next day we read, the whole nation rises up against Moses and Aaron and seek to destroy them for their role in the deaths of the preceding day. So they say, you killed 250 men. We hate you. And they're going to put them to death. God at that point sends his glory to shine from the tent of meeting. And there at the tent of meeting, he meets with Aaron and Moses. The Israelites are standing against them. God says to Moses and to Aaron, get away from this congregation. I am going to consume them instantly. So what do Moses and Aaron do? Do they scurry to the far side of the clearing? No. Scripture tells us Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before God. Then Moses shouts to Aaron, go get your incense and your censer, light the incense, run through the people, for God has sent a deadly plague on them and they are already dying. These people who were ready to kill them moments before, Aaron takes his censer, fills it with incense, runs in the midst of them, saving their lives, risking the plague himself in their midst to save their lives. And so the plague was checked. But those who died were 14,700. God's leaders are alone, without protection, without strength. Yet they stood for God when the people were sinning. And when God was dealing with the people for their sin, like good priests, they stood for God when the people were sinning. But when God is filled with wrath and putting people to death for their sin, they stand for the people against God, the very ones who've been seeking their lives. And so with the plague live and, and claiming lives all around them, Aaron and Moses stand with the people. This is Jesus, our glorious Savior, surrounded by devious men, plotted against by cowards. He walks on steadily to the cross, steadily to Calvary, 
steadily on to the bloody death these men have devised. And in so doing, he walks to save mankind from sin. What courage we see here in Jesus. And oh, that you and I would in the slightest way honor this courageous Savior by our courage for him in this evil world. You can't have faith without courage. You can't. You must be willing to stand alone. Perhaps the bravest thing you will ever do in your life, if you're a child of God, is to say, my path is doomed. I need a savior. And to step off the broad way which everyone's going down and to say, I will follow you, Jesus. Forgive me. It's what the thief on the cross does at the very end. He says, I've been on a bad path. What a lonely act. Everyone in the world mocking him. But he repents. Repent. What courage it takes to repent, to say, I've been wrong. Repent. How it sets you apart from all your friends and even your family. You say, you don't need to repent. You're not that bad. Repent. Turn from sin, from the broad and easy way. And follow this glorious Savior. In June 1940, Aristides de Sousa Mendes, the consul general in Bordeaux, France, from Portugal, could see as he went through the town and as he was in his office in the city, a stream of Jewish men, women, and children flooding the sidewalk. Hitler had just conquered France with shocking speed And now the Jews, made stateless by Nazi racial laws, were coming to the consular streets, places where the embassies were and the consulates, seeking visas to escape. In his case, transit visas to Portugal and freedom. Now, Sousa Mendes had a prime minister, Salazar, who had ordered him to deny every such request. Don't cause us problems with the Germans. This man knew that the visas were their only chance of escape. But he knew also that going against the prime minister would be the end of his career. And he had 15 children. But he was a devout Catholic. And so he spent his last weeks before his recall in France signing as many visas as he could. And it's guessed approximately at least 1,500 to 1,600 people were saved by this man, giving up his job, giving up his career, giving up his income. He died penniless, but he saved 1,600 people. Courage is lonely. The greatest courage is the courage that's inspired by the courage of Jesus Christ, as was the case with this man. 
Live a courageous life. Don't die a coward and go to hell. Live for Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the courage of Jesus Christ, the saving courage. May it be displayed ever more brightly as we walk through these chapters of Scripture, Father. May we honor him by our courage. May we turn away from the broad way and the crowds and have the courage of Christ. Keep us from cowardice. We know, Father, that Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me in this life, I'll be ashamed of you when I return. May he not be ashamed of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.